Hello there, it's Lishan. I wanted to share a quick update about what we've been up to because it's been a while since we've released a new episode. And I also wanted to share a crossover episode where the tables are turned, where I'm the interviewee. So first, a quick update. What have we been up to? This year and the pandemic have shaken up a lot of things, and so we have pivoted. So while we haven't recorded and edited a new episode of Design Future Now for a few months now, I have been doing live interviews on the AIGA Instagram account, AIGA Design, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. And those interviews are with designers and creative practitioners from all over the world. You can catch up on back episodes on the AIGA Design IGTV page. So that's me. You may have also seen me in various AIGA webinars, online panels at the Portfolio Festival this summer. And I'll also be at the AIGA Design Conference hosting a few of the events. Learn more at designconference.aiga.org. We're now 100% online, open to anybody in the world. We would love to offer our loyal podcast listeners a discount code for this conference. Just drop us a line, podcast at aiga.org. Just tell us about yourself. What have you been working on? What have you been listening to? What is inspiring you right now? And I'll send you back a coupon code. We'll be back with more original podcast content in 2021. But for now, I wanted to share an episode of the Design Thinking Roundtable podcast hosted by Anne-Laura Fayard, who is an associate professor of innovation, design, and organizational studies at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. Anne-Laura is also a faculty advisor to the NYU chapter of Design for America. So in this episode, The Tables Are Turned, Anne-Laure is interviewing me about my career in design and the role of storytelling in my practice. And so I thought it'd be an interesting way for you to get to know me and my practice a little bit more, and also for us to highlight other podcasters like Anne-Laure. Hope you enjoy the episode. Talk to you soon. Welcome to the Design Thinking Roundtable podcast, which explores various aspects of design and how it can create change and social impact. My name is Amor Fayard, Associate Professor at New York University. I'm an ethnographer who researches, teaches, and practices human-centered design with a focus on social innovation and collaboration. My guest today is Li Shan Huang, co-founder and creative director of FUSA, a consultancy that helps organizations tell stories, design services, and build community. His expertise is on the intersection between design and democracy. Li Shan is interested in the role of participation and play in the future of education, work, health, and civic engagement. He also hosts the Design Future Now podcast produced by AIGA. His work ranges from redesigning the experience of employee health and wellness at a Fortune 500 corporation to helping agencies of the United Nations better manage their institutional knowledge. Prior to co-founding FUSA, Li Shen was the founding member of the design team at Purpose, a public benefit consultancy that builds movements and new power models to tackle the world's biggest problems. Lishan regularly teaches and writes about community-centered design and social innovation. He's a part-time lecturer at New York University, Parsons School of Design at the New School, and the School of Visual Arts. He has written for publications including Good Magazine, Fast Company, and the Huffington Post. 
Li Shen, welcome to the Design Thinking Roundtable. Could you tell me more about your journey and your work? What is your background and how did you get interested in design? Sure. So thanks so much for having me, Anlor. Uh, about my work, I split my time between being a design practitioner and an educator. I'm also involved in hosting design-related media. So I work at AIGA, which is the Professional Association for Design, the oldest and largest professional association for design here in the US, where I host their podcast called Design Future Now, as well as what's well, turned into a live show on Instagram on Wednesdays called Design Future Live Now, where I get to be the interviewer talking to creative practitioners, designers from across the world on what they're doing to create the future and how they've designed themselves in a in effect, right? To how did they get to where they are in their careers? So how did I get here? That's a really interesting journey. I was born in Taiwan. My parents were grad students uh, in Arizona. So my family moved to Arizona. Uh, I was four years old. So I grew up, grew up in the Phoenix area. And um, basically when I was in elementary school through junior high, the local university, Arizona State, ASU, um, where my parents went for their master's, also had programming for kids. Um, they had a center called the Center for Academic Precocity called CAP. And they offered all sorts of classes for young people, including computer programming, uh, video TV production, creative writing. So it was an amazing opportunity as a young person to have access to that, especially in a state university uh, context, right, and making it very affordable. And so I was exposed very young to different tools, different media uh, to work with and to express myself, essentially. Um, I was also a musician, so learned how to produce music on my own using a computer. My parents owned a computer store, actually, for 30 years. So I was always kind of in this uh, in this kind of context. Um, so, you know, fast forward, went to high school in Arizona, went to Arizona State for one year, um, where I was actually in a film program, although it was more sort of film critique and analysis. We didn't really have production. Um, but then I had the opportunity to transfer to Harvard. So I did that and then did kind of a, a real transformation and decided to actually major in political science um, and was interested in international diplomacy. Um, kind of fast forward some more, uh, moved to Japan after I graduated. Um, I studied Japanese in college, and I taught in Japan for three years on the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, or the JET Program, um, continued my music making and, and media making there, um, came back to the States, and then ended up working in the nonprofit sector at a time when social media was really new. I was the sort of still youngish 20-something who had some tech knowledge, and so it was kind of easy to talk my way into doing stuff like doing websites and social media content and, and video production, things like that. Um, and then I uh, went back to school, so I'm an NYU alum as well. I graduated from the ITP uh, program or ITP Interactive Telecommunications program at NYU Tisch. Um, and then while I was there, I ended up getting a job at a creative consultancy, strategy consultancy called Purpose that works in kind of social design and community building, movement building. And so there was a lot of just on the job learning from both well from school and for uh, working at purpose. Um, and I think where I really got into social design, human centered design was 
my purpose. I had the chance to do field work in India with one of our clients. I got to live in Brazil for a few months uh, where we had an office um, doing research with local people, kind of understanding uh, their context. And so I think that's kind of what synthesized it all before I started FUSA, which is uh, the company that I started with David Colby Reed in 2013. Thank you for sharing. Uh, it's always great to be able to take the time to hear someone's personal journey. I've known you for several years now and you part of your journey, but having the full perspective is, is really nice. In your work, there is clearly a deep connection between design and democracy. Can you tell me more about the importance that a community-centered perspective has for you in the process of creative problem solving? For instance, FUSA is, is about community-centered design. What does it really mean? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So first off, when we talk about human-centered design or user-centered design, uh, we're, usually there's not like just one human, right? There's not one user. They exist in a community. They're part of a family, they're part of an organization, they're part of a neighborhood. And so part of this community-centered design ethos is understanding community, understanding society, but more importantly, understanding systems and the relationship between people. And it's also a recognition that design is inherently political. And I don't mean political in the sort of, you know, the elections going on right now, but political in terms of it's about human relations, right? And it changes our relationship and how it mediates our relationships with people. So, you know, having grown up without a cell phone and then all of a sudden getting one um, in my late teens, right? It kind of changes the way that you're able to schedule things and to navigate the world uh, literally, right? So, these changes in relationships um, also affect like how we're able to do work, right? People um, checking work emails when they wake up or late at night because it's there. It's that device that almost never leaves you. And so for us, thinking about community-centered design is looking beyond a single user or the single human uh, who's your target user or customer and understanding these relationships. And so as designers, with this intersection of design and democracy, it's both reflects my academic background in political science and then getting into design, as well as my co-founder, David, who has a degree also from NYU uh, Wagner in public policy um, and design in our practice is that we as designers have this choice. If design is inherently political, it's changing relationships, mediating our relationships with the world and with each other, we have a choice as designers to either be dictatorial or democratic, right? Like all of these organizations that are, you know, creating the software that helps us like search online or to connect with our uh, friends online in terms of uh, social media, they're making these choices that affect us both in the sort of like capital P politics, but also the small P politics of um, our relationships. So um, I think that's the important part. It was like having a recognition of that, understanding power and relationships in systems and understanding that design affects people's lives, right? Public policy affects people's lives. The economy affects people's lives, but so does design. But we usually kind of have in a democratic system, ideally, we talk about uh, some of these trade-offs about the economy or about uh, public policy, but we don't always do so in design because designers are seen as like, you know, elites or um, far off somewhere with their glasses and their, um, you know, all black shirts and whatever that is, right? And so how do we make design more accessible to everyone while also recognizing the expertise of designers who are doing this professionally? 
let's now move to one of your expertise, which is storytelling. Um, as I, I told you when we were starting, it, it's like um, when I think of storytelling, I remember, you know, being in some of your workshops or hearing you giving talks about it. So th there's a recognition that stories are important. This is the, there's the whole idea that there are a lot of good ideas out there, but not all of them are implemented. One reason being that, you know, some are better at convincing different stakeholders. Uh, there's also this notion of the elevator pitch in the entrepreneurship um, world. Can you tell us what is storytelling for you? What is its value? In particular, you know, looking at your work, um, it seems to me that for you, storytelling is much more than just the final uh, pitch. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think the final pitch or pitching your idea, pitching your venture is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to storytelling. I think folks often associate storytelling with either like a movie or a play or a TV show or like, um, you know, a commercial or your, your marketing pitch. Um, but really it starts out with storytelling in the ethnography phase and the research phase. When we're talking to people that we're designing for, designing with, we're collecting stories both about their lives today, how they got there, um, why it is they do what they do, how they make sense of the world, all of these are stories that we're collecting, right? And, and then synthesizing them into insights that allow us to design more effectively. So I think there's first, we're already collecting stories up front. Second, I think stories help us understand systems. And so um, I'll talk about an example of my work later on, uh, but we did a project, a service design project at FUSA in collaboration with the Parsons School of Design in New York City, where we were suggesting various design interventions and changes to an existing public service. And some of it had to do with branding, some of it had to do with a digital touch point, some of it had to do with just paper and brochures and things like that. And so rather than kind of just showing, okay, here is the poster, here is the app, we can tell a story from the perspective of a user of a client and her experience with all of these different touch points. And, and that too was a story. So yes, there is a sort of like pitching or, or selling aspect of that, but it's also helping us understand the system and how all of these pieces fit together. And then I think also, in addition to thinking about stories as like a pitch or selling something and understanding it in terms of a system, we're also telling possibility stories as designers, right? Because you're getting from point A, which is the current state of the world as it is today, to point B, which is some desired future world, right, where your design exists, whether you have a product or a service or whatever that is. So how do you tell a story of what that world looks like? And then you can also use it, you know, there's so many different ways to use stories, but you can also use it at that team level. Um, if you've heard of things like a post-mortem or even a pre-mortem is before you even start on your project, how do you talk about like what your hopes and fears are? What does, you know, what does winning look like? What does success look like? And how do you put that in story form and not just kind of bullet points or data, right? Because stories are how we make sense of the world. And then we can also debate this about like, okay, is that a realistic story? Is that, um, you know, something that's a compelling story? But so stories also act as these artifacts that allow us to discuss and debate like what is good or what is um, desirable within a given design choice. I like the idea of stories as artifacts or debate tools that can help articulate and negotiate perspectives. In sociology, we talk about boundary objects. L let me play the devil's advocate now. 
While storytelling is acknowledged as key when it comes to articulating ideas and convincing stakeholders, stories tend to be seen as narratives, words. But there are also these mantras in design, show don't tell, or picture is worth a thousand words. Of course, one could argue that stories can be visual. Comic books tell stories with images. Stella, I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts about this potential tension? Yeah, I think maybe this is like a false binary and that they fit together, right? And so obviously we have different skills, different talents. Uh, some of us prefer to communicate verbally or in writing or through uh, images and pictures, illustrations, photography, whatever that is. And so I think, you know, using uh, this term that you mentioned and lore of boundary objects, we can tell stories across different media, right? Using words, maybe somebody's writing the script, but then uh, somebody on your team who's more visually inclined uh, can illustrate it or you can find pictures. Uh, one co-design technique that I use within a team or also with um, you know, with users, with, with customers, is just having people look up things like on Google image search or on Flickr or something like that, right? So it doesn't matter if you can draw or not, you know, you can have people draw on a post-it too, uh, but using found objects, found images uh, to help tell these stories, whether it's just about, it's something more abstract, like about a feeling that a user feels while they're using your product or service, or it's just something, you know, you found some stock images and it helps you tell the story. So as part of that internal story process, as part of that internal storytelling process, it doesn't really matter, right? In terms of your visual skills or your writing skills, you can supplement that with things that you find and um, use that again as the boundary object or the thing that you're building with your team so you can discuss and debate it and see, okay, is this a compelling story for a user? Is this a compelling story for a team? So I think, again, like there's kind of a false binary there, but you can think about storytelling across different media. I'd like to ask you about a specific project, which I personally, you know, uh, find really inspiring and uh, ins for me illustrate really well the power of community-centered design storytelling for action. And this project is the the collaboration you you did with uh, UX for Good and the Kigali Genocide uh, Memorial. Um, so can you uh, tell us about this project and in particular, how can we facilitate diverse groups to craft their stories, share them and then spark, you know, real world social action? Yeah. So the project, as you said, was a collaboration between UX for Good, which is a nonprofit organization that brings together UX designers, service designers uh, from top companies or independent independent practitioners as well to work on social or humanitarian issues. And so I've worked with them on a couple of their design challenges already, first in New Orleans, another one in Vancouver. And then 2014 is when we started the collaboration in Rwanda in Kigali. It was the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. And the memorial there in Kigali invited us there to help them with this issue of essentially storytelling and experience design, right? They, their mission is to both have a place of remembrance. It's, it's not just a memorial, it's also a mass gravesite, um, but it also tells the story for both Rwandans and for international audiences about what happened, right? And that bearing witness and truth is really important as part of a, you know, preventing future genocides and, and this idea of never again. But the problem that they had was 
around engagement. In some ways, they did their job too well. And so a lot of people who visited the memorial, especially international visitors um, who maybe weren't so viscerally uh, familiar with the story of what happened in Rwanda in the 90s, um, you know, what do you do once you are witness to that? You know the truth, you know, like to put it a little crudely, right? You can't really just ask people to exit through the gift shop. Um, you know, so what do you do there uh, to make it useful? You know, how do you use this first experience? And it's, you know, you don't want to hide the truth and um, all of the details of the truth there, but how do you put visitors in a place that enable them to be supporters of contemporary human rights and humanitarian issues? How do you get them to think about this, how it connects to their own life? And some of that takes time, right? You just have to go through the traumatic experience and then take some time. But I think like kind of long story short, and I, I have a talk where I talk about uh, the full case study, but basically the insight here is that an effective story doesn't need to be told chronologically, right? So um, when we first worked with the museum, they you basically went through uh, Rwandan history from kind of pre-colonial to colonial to pre-genocide to the genocide. And then it kind of leaves you in 1994 with this kind of devastated country and, and liberation, but then that's kind of it, right? And it's it had been 20 years, now it's been um, over 25 years. And so how do you tell a story that actually shows the rebuilding of Rwanda and uh, the reconciliation that's actually happened, right? And, and also heroes uh, during the genocide. And so a lot of our design recommendations had to do with resequencing some of this or highlighting stories that were already there but thinking about when in a visitor's journey you were uh, you inc you encounter some of these stories right so at the, at first the final room that you went into was the children's room which is memorializing children who were brutally murdered in this genocide which i think it's it's important but it's not necessarily the sort of last image that you want um in people's heads if you want to kind of recruit them for um a humanitarian cause right so how do you put that in context and like a very concrete design intervention that happened over the course of our collaboration is that the memorial got some funding to build a new welcome center and they were able to commission a a video that featured genocide survivors kind of in the present day or in the um you know the recent past and they talk about their experiences but also how the, the life goes on for them and how they've found ways to heal and to reconcile not that you can completely uh recover from something like that but putting that context into contemporary Rwanda and then sending you back into time kind of changes your emotional journey with all of this stuff, right? And contextualizes in a different way. So I think that's an example of thinking about like a, a user journey, a visitor's journey as how they experience a story and how do you sequence a story in a way that's most emotionally appealing and not just a sort of chronological story. Thank you for sharing this inspiring project, which definitely shows how storytelling and design can create change. You told us about the power of storytelling, the importance of sequencing, how stories help collaboration. I now would like to ask you, what might be some advice for people who would like to master or at least practice storytelling? Yeah. I mean, I think storytelling, like any other other kind of embodied skill, right? You can kind of start with the lo-fi of just 
practice telling your stories, um, maybe with an audience of friends and, and kind of work up from there. Um, there's obviously medium specific advice, right? Whether you want to focus on the writing or the visual storytelling, whatever that is. So it's hard to generalize there. But I think, you know, a few things to think about is that stories have structures and patterns, right? I've talked about uh, the chronological story of just like, okay, this happened, then that happened, and this happened in order uh, versus a story that is um, not necessarily chronological, right? It's based on what's most effective in terms of emotional impact. Um, and you can you know, watch some Tarantino films for that sort of example, right? And then also think about stories need to take you somewhere, right? So um, where do you start and then where do you end up? And it should be some sort of transformation in the middle. Um, and so... I mentioned this project, uh, Design for Financial Empowerment, where we were telling this possibility story to help understand the system around financial counseling. The protagonist in that video, she starts out with, you know, being stressed about her financial situation, and then she ends up being connected to a community of people having similar issues, but they can support each other, right? So at first she was alone and stressed and at the end, she felt more empowered and as part of a community. So think about your starting and your endpoints, um, and then how you sequence stuff doesn't have to be chronological, but um, you want to have some sort of transformation there. Lishan, before we end up this uh, interview, I'd like to ask you one last question. What is the one common myth about your profession or field that you would like to debunk? I think the common myth that I'd like to debunk is that there is no strict rules about the ideal design process. Um, and I think you can also apply that to the rules about the ideal story structure, right? So if you like study film writing or something like that, they'll, uh, you'll learn about like the three-act structure or the five-act structure or the hero's journey. All of these things are meant to be a guide. They're meant to be, I think, a, a descriptive guide, not necessarily a strictly prescriptive guide, right? So I think um, you can apply this to design as well, whether you're learning this process of like empathize, define, ideate, you know, prototype, test, like all of these help us manage a team, right? Having this common vocabulary of like, okay, this is where we're going. This is a North Star, even if there isn't a set map or a set recipe, but it helps give us these uh, milestones, right? And uh, this wayfinding. But I like to compare it with like learning how to dance or learning how to play jazz music, right? So you you have the steps that you learn. Like I, I don't really know how to dance very well, but I remember taking this like a uh, swing dance class years ago, right? And it's like, okay, you learn the steps, but if you just follow the steps, you end up pretty robotic, right? Like the swing dancing is all of the stuff that's not explicitly in like the steps with a little feet uh, diagram, right? It's all of that sort of stuff. And just same with jazz, right? You get the, the chord charts and from there, that's the basis of your own creativity with your own connection with the audience. And as a designer, like all of these structures help you as a learner, right? It's sort of like the training wheels version. Um, or the, the paint by numbers version. But then once you're designing in the real world or telling stories in the real world, these structures are, are meant to be just guidelines, but it's not like a strict thing that you can just sort of follow and, and replicate um, and expect results. Thank you so much for, for making this, this point. This is something that I, I personally always stress in my teaching. There's definitely value to having guidelines, but we should not become prisoners of the steps. Um, 
I think it's a, this is a great way to close the conversation with uh, a lot of opportunities for practice. Um, so I'd like to thank you uh, for your insights on storytelling, the politics of design, and its improvisational nature. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Design Thinking Roundtable. I'd like to thank our sponsor, NYU Tendon, Department of Technology Management and Innovation, and our partners, the Design Lab at NYU Makerspace and DFA NYU. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at NYU Makerspace and at DFA NYU.